pray with me, please? Father, I surrender all. And my prayer is this. Strengthen me so that in this hour I will give a credible witness to the God of the universe. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. And amen. Thank you, Dr. Martin, for the gracious invitation uh, to give the lectures uh, this spring, uh, my first year at Indiana Wesleyan. He has told you the general theme of the two lectures is St. Francis and the Paradox of the Gospel. And what I want to uh, speak to you this morning is uh, this issue of mud pies and holidays. Uh, the issue of self-denial, renunciation, the monastic vows, and focusing particularly on the first one for which the Franciscans were so well known, and that is their vow of absolute poverty. If you read the little, uh, well, the last paragraph, I guess, in the bio that they did, a brochure for the series, you already know that I am not a monk. Uh, in 19 days, in fact, I will celebrate my 28th wedding anniversary with my lovely wife, Terry, and I have two daughters. I also own a house and gladly accept a monthly paycheck from the university. So uh, I have taken neither vows of poverty nor celibacy. Not only am I not a monk, I'm not even Catholic. I am an American evangelical Protestant living in the 21st century. And I am aware enough of current events to know that topics like self-denial and renunciation and monastic vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience are not currently fashionable in American society, and as far as that goes, probably not very fashionable in the evangelical church. However, as a historian, I have always appreciated C.S. Lewis's warning against what he calls chronological snobbery that something may be out of fashion, but that says absolutely nothing about its truth or its falsehood. But something and someone from the Middle Ages, wasn't that that thousand years without a bath period? Some of you are saying, well, uh, I'm convinced there is something of value here in the lessons of this man, Francis of Assisi. The Francis I am referring to is St. Francis of Assisi. He was born in either 1181 or 1182, we're not sure, in the town of Assisi. He was christened by his mother, Giovanni, after John the Baptist. But when his father returned from a business trip in France, where he often went, he nicknamed his newborn son Francesco. So we have known him ever since as Francis. Pietro, his father, was a wealthy middle-class merchant, and he thought that someday his son would take over the prosperous family business. But Francis had different plans. He dreamed of glory, fame, and fortune that was to be won on the battlefield because more than anything in the world, Francis was filled with images of going off as a knight on holy crusades in this, the heyday of chivalry. Well, whatever his dreams, 
What Francis did with his early life mainly was to squander his father's money and possessions. He was, I guess, what we would call a party animal. He threw parties and he attracted many friends who sponged off Francis, who was sponging off his father. One of Francis's earliest biographers was a man named Thomas of Chalano. And Thomas says that until Francis was 25 years old, he wasted his time miserably. Indeed, he outdid all others in vanities, in jokes, in strange doings, in idle and useless talk, and in songs. He was a party animal. And his life was spent in the pursuit of pleasure and joy and happiness. In 1202, when he was 20 years old, he finally rode off to war, not to the Holy Land, but to a neighboring town, Perugia that was at war with his own town of Assisi. And there he hoped to win his glory and fame as a soldier. Well, he was captured and spent the next year in prison. It's interesting the way God moves to get our attention. He was released a year later and came home and then fell deathly ill. And for several weeks, he hovered near death. When he recovered, he tried to go back to being the master of revelry, as Thomas of Chalano called him. But he was beginning to find his old way of life and his old pursuit for pleasure empty and meaningless. And soon he does find himself in a battle, but it's a spiritual battle as he is struggling against the promises of his old life and what he believes is the call of God, a new life of self-denial and renunciation. He struggles, he struggles, he struggles. It, at times he reminds me of St. Augustine who is in between those two worlds and at one time uh, Augustine is being chased by one of his former girlfriends, one of his former prostitute friends, in fact. And Augustine said, I cried out to God, save me, but not yet. And so it's a struggle because the old life made promises to Augustine and to Francis, promises of joy and pleasure and happiness. And he wasn't sure what this new life would bring. But one day while in fervent prayer, Francis believed that he heard that still, small voice of God. And he said, this is what God said. Oh, Francis, if you want to know my will, you must hate and despise. All that which hereto your body has loved and desired to possess. Once you begin to do this, all that formerly seems sweet and pleasant to you will become bitter and unbearable. And instead, the things that formerly made you shudder will bring you great sweetness and content. This is the paradox of the gospel, I think. What is a paradox? Well, I pulled my Webster's Collegiate Dictionary off the shelf the other day, and we're using definition 2A. This is a paradox. A statement 
that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. We're going to say it's a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and is true. That's our working definition of what a paradox is. See, sin has distorted our thinking. There is a way that seems right. There is a way that makes sense to us as the path to pleasure and joy. But we don't think the way God thinks. And the gospel is often couched in paradoxical terms, as you know. In order to find your life, you must lose it. In order to live, you must die. It is in giving that we receive. Humble yourself and you will be exalted. And George Matheson has a great hymn that has the paradox of the gospel when he says, make me a captive Lord and then I will be free. So at about the age of 25, St. Francis of Assisi has a dramatic conversion and he embraces the monastic life. At first he's going to go off and, and just live by himself and devote himself to, to prayer and contemplation and seeking God. But he soon attracts followers and they all take the traditional vows of medieval monasticism that had been laid down by Benedict of Nursia in the early 6th century. A vow of poverty, a vow of chastity, and a vow of obedience. A life of renunciation and self-denial. Let me say that again. A life of renunciation and self-denial denial. But is that the whole story? Does it tell us all we need to know to call it a life of renunciation and self-denial? I don't think it does. I think there's much more to it than that. And here is another paradox. I said that Francis in his early life, prior to his conversion, spent his life in the pursuit of pleasure and joy and happiness. Now here to me is the irony. Here to me is the great paradox that you find in the gospel. Do you know what St. Francis did in his life as a monastic, as a friar? He spent it in pursuit of the same things, pleasure, and joy and happiness. Now I know that church traditionally makes a great distinction between joy and happiness, but increasingly the older I get, the more unhelpful I find that. Pascal said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. And I think he's exactly right. Is there anybody in here who doesn't want to be happy? Can I see a show of hands? All men seek happiness. We all seek happiness. This is without exception. But surely you're not saying that that is to be part of the Christian life. Do you know what our problem is? Our problem is we look in all the wrong places and to all the wrong things to bring us joy and pleasure and happiness. What is sin, biblically speaking? Sin is looking for joy, pleasure, and happiness where it cannot be lastingly found. 
My favorite passage that illustrates that profound truth is in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Listen, and this is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewed out, dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. God offers himself to us as an all-satisfying fountain of living water, and we say, no thank you, I'll dig my own well. I'll dig my own cistern and I'll find my living water there. Do you know what God's greatest rivals in the world are? Not demons, his own good gifts. His own good gifts. For that is what idols are made of. The good gifts of God. What Benedict and the monastic tradition saw was that the greatest rivals for our affection for God were money and possessions, sex and relationships, and freedom, autonomous individualism. Isn't that interesting? Money and possessions, so they had a vow of poverty. Sex and relationships, so they had a vow of chastity and freedom, autonomous individualism, and so they called for a vow of obedience, that you belong to another. Are there three more powerful idols in Marion, Indiana today than money, sex, and individualism? See, sin causes us to look to the gift severed from its giver. And we look to the gift, good gifts all, but we look to the gift as the source of pleasure and joy and ultimate happiness and security and satisfaction. And you know what sin does? Sin lies. But we're deceived. Do you know why sin has power in my life? Do you know why sin has power in my life? Because sin makes juicy promises to me. And I believe the lying promises of sin. It is what C.S. Lewis called the sweet poison of the false infinite. Then God in his mercy and love and grace comes and you know what God does? He makes counter promises to us. God makes counter promises to the juicy promises of sin, you're saying? Absolutely. He promises to you fullness of joy. Yeah, but he doesn't promise pleasure and happiness. Oh, Psalm 16, 11 says... Thou dost show me the path of life. In thy presence there is fullness of joy, and in thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. And do you really think people who end up in hell are going to find ultimate happiness? 
heavens know. That'll be for those in heaven. See, everybody lives by faith. Everybody lives by faith. And faith is trust. Either we trust and believe the promises of sin or we trust and believe the counter promises of God. G.K. Chesterton has a great phrase about the Christian life regarding this monastic way of self-denial and renunciation. He says it's really more like a dance, if I can use that term. He says it's the dialectical movement of enjoyment and renunciation. The dialectical movement between enjoyment and renunciation. See, Francis knew that desire was not his problem. We need to learn this. It was the object of his desires. See, there's a big difference between the Buddha and Francis. The Buddha saw desire itself as the culprit. And so what is his solution? What is his salvation? to rid yourself of all desire. But if the Buddha is a fire extinguisher, St. Francis of Assisi was a pyromaniac. He doesn't see desire as the problem. In fact, he is trying to inflame his desires for God, for God. Deny yourself the fleeting pleasures of sin so that you might enjoy the eternal pleasures found at the right hand of God. Well, that sounds like a paradox. It is, but it's profoundly true. So Francis and his followers take this vow of poverty and they are known for their extreme asceticism, absolute poverty, unlike other monastic traditions that sometimes try to bypass uh, this uh, vow of poverty. They don't have individual property, but they could have communal property. And Francis doesn't want them to have any kind. It, it's, it's real poverty. In one of his more gracious moments, he said, usually he said, don't touch money. Don't touch money. And he said, well, if you have to touch it, move it around with sticks. So I got my mailbox and get my monthly check with my chopsticks. No, I don't do that. But, uh, poverty. See, Francis is like a living object lesson in the world. He never insisted that all Christians give away everything. Only those who joined his order. But he wanted all Christians to learn something from their living parable. And I think there's lots here to learn for us. Money represents what can be obtained by human resources. And the promises it offers are juicy. But this son of a wealthy merchant had drunk from that broken cistern and ultimately he found it to be very dusty and dry. See, he understood the wonderful paradox that poverty is currency in the economy of God. Isaiah 55.1 expresses this. Everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come 
buy and eat. Come buy wine, milk, without money and without price. You can't buy it, not with money, not with your good works. It's just free for the taking. Come with empty hands so that you might take hold and embrace the riches of God's love and grace lavished on you. Another quote of Thomas of Chilano, early biographer of Francis. I almost like this quote. I almost like this quote. He says, there was no one so desirous of gold as Francis was desirous of poverty and no one so solicitous in guarding his treasure as Francis was solicitous in guarding this pearl of the gospel, poverty. I, I like the image of Francis being greedy for poverty. That's a nice uh, paradox that intrigues me. But you know, I don't think Francis was greedy for poverty. In the dialectic of renunciation and enjoyment, Francis was greedy for a relationship with Jesus. He loves Jesus. He wants to so identify with Jesus. And that is what he's desirous of. Poverty was a means to that great end. He knew that self-denial was not enough. The negatives of the Christian life are not enough. And to learn this from a friar, a monk. In fact, if Paul's right, and I'm assuming he is, if all we have are the negatives, if all we have is the law, it actually stirs up sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, that for the power of sin is the law. Man, when that began to sink in six, seven years ago, I said, man, I'm in trouble. The sin, my, my sin is being stirred up by the law. And I always thought the law was the solution. Now, Jesus is the solution. Self-denial is not enough. It's a means to an end. It's a means to treasure. It's a means to God. Francis believed that the Christian life was to be above all a life of joy. He rebuked his friars when they would be fast, be gloomy or sad. He would say, let those who belong to the devil hang their heads. We ought to be glad and rejoice in the Lord. He saw joy, in fact, as his primary religious duty. There's a nice paradox. He saw joy as his primary religious duty. Duty. He saw joy and love as the essence of the spirit-filled life. Why was Francis full of joy? Because Francis had found treasure. The little poor man, that's what they called him, il poverello. The little poor man thought he was the richest man in Assisi in the 13th century. He had found a treasure. And like a greedy prospector, he wants to shed anything and everything that impedes him in digging for more of that treasure, which was his intimate love relationship with Jesus. Well, I wonder what Jesus would think about this. Let me tell you what he thinks about it. Matthew 13 tells us, 
For the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had to buy that field. That sounds like Francis. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Is Jesus your treasure? And are you willing to surrender everything in order to have the treasure that is the kingdom of heaven? Jesus taking up residence in you. Or do you come to Jesus in mere dutiful allegiance, but your heart is someplace else? But isn't duty in the Christian life a higher virtue than doing something because it brings you joy? Many think so. Many in the evangelical church think so. Francis didn't think so. And I think he is right. I think he's profoundly right. Let me ask you a question. What was your favorite Christmas present of all time? What was your favorite Christmas present of all time? I think mine was the rifleman's rifle. Now, some of you have no idea what I just said. Uh, this was a TV show of the late 50s, Lucas McCain. I see uh, Dr. Bartley knows what I'm talking about. Uh, and he had that round uh, lever on there, and I'd five years old, and I'd stand in front of the mirror, and I'd try to you know, wheel that thing. It hit me in the shoulder all the time. I had a bruised shoulder. But, but I love that. I love that gift. I love that present. Did you ever get anything for Christmas that your mother said, well, I know you didn't want this, but you need this? <laughs> you have. One year, I got some neat presents that I really wanted, and then I also got black socks. Is the Christian life more like getting your favorite Christmas present of all time, or is it more like getting black socks for Christmas? You know, for the longest time, I thought the Christian life was like getting black socks for Christmas. Oh, God gives us not what we long for, not what we desire, not what we want, but what we need. I used to say that. I used to preach that. But what if my deep, profound longing is for God? I just don't know it. It doesn't do me any good to tell me I need to extinguish that desire. That's Buddhism. That's not the way of Jesus. Black socks for Christmas. See, that does not stir my heart to think of God like black socks for Christmas. It does not meet the profound longings of my heart. I need something much more glorious than that. See, we mistakenly think desire is the problem, and so salvation is extinguishing desire and doing what you know is your duty. And be suspicious of anything because it brings you joy or pleasure. Francis thought that was absolutely upside down. He thought that was wrong-headed. Augustine thought that was the wrong approach. C.S. Lewis thought that was the wrong approach. More recently, John Piper thinks that's the wrong approach. I think they're all profoundly biblical in their opposition to that idea. Did I really think 
I mean, follow the logic. Did I really think that God would be peeved if I found him to be a treasure, the delight of my life? See, it seems to make so much sense now. I, I, hear, I hear objections still, but it sounds like you're making a God out of pleasure. No, you know what the answer to that is? We have already made a God out of what we take most pleasure in. God offers himself to us as an all-satisfying fountain of living water. But surely he doesn't want us to pursue our joy or pleasure or ultimate happiness. Only if we pursue it any place other than in him. You know, don't you, that when you find enjoyment in something or in someone, you magnify that thing or that person? See, I used to think that teeth gritting duty for duty's sake glorified God. Francis says, no, it glorifies you. It just shows how you're dedicated, but your heart is really someplace else. Are you sure? I'm sure, I'm positive. 19 days, I'll be married 28 years to my wonderful wife. On the 25th Christmas that we spent together, I bought her a pearl necklace. Now, imagine I did this. I, I don't imagine the necklace because I really didn't buy it, but I, I, she opens it up that Christmas morning and she says, oh, a pearl necklace. She says, Mark, why did you get me this? And what if I would have said, it's my duty. It says in the husband's manual, on the 25th Christmas you spend together with your wife, get her something nice for Christmas. Why, why do you laugh? Why do you hold duty in such low regard if it is such a high virtue? Because it doesn't honor my wife. Now bump that up a notch and let God ask you on a Sunday morning, you're in church, and he says, why are you here? And you stiffen up and you say, it's my duty. It says in the book, don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves. Do you really think God is honored and magnified and glorified by that? What's the right answer? Mark, why did you? Mark, why are you here? And you say, I can't help myself. Nothing makes me happier than to be in your presence. You are my treasure. You are the delight of my life. That glorifies God, not us. And Francis knew that the negative way had to be countered with a great positive. And the great positive was seeing Jesus as a treasure. If you had 5,000 Franciscans or 1,700 Indiana Wesleyan students all together in a service because they found God to be a treasure, because they found God to bring them more satisfaction and more pleasure than anything else in the world, who would be at the center of all of that? God would be at the center of all of that. So it's the way of it's the dialectic of renunciation and enjoyment. 
deny and renounce all that would impede your prospecting for treasure. Sin makes promises and God makes counter-promises. Well, let me quickly tell you why I have this title, Mud Pies and Holidays. Some of you probably know that's out of a the first page of an incredible essay of C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. And it, it, it just has the spirit of Francis and the spirit of the Gospels. This is what Lewis says about desire. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. There's the sermon. Let me give you my text. It's Hebrews 11, 24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated, that's an odd choice, along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to the reward. Renunciation and enjoyment. He believed God was a superior treasures to the mind-boggling wealth of Egypt. And so he is. Pray with me. Father, my prayer is that you would so ravish our hearts that we would be so overwhelmed with your love and your grace and your mercy, and we would see you as a treasure to be valued above everything else. And so we would stop looking to your gifts, but we would look to you, the giver, as the source of infinite joy, everlasting pleasure, and ultimate happiness, a life of renunciation and enjoyment to the glory of God. Do this in our hearts. Amen. Have a great day.